Olaso. Let's go directly into the meditation. So please find a comfortable position. And overall, if you're uncomfortable in the sitting, then by all means go supine. Otherwise, for this practice of the Donglen, generally I found a bit better to be sitting vertical. But most important, you're comfortable. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. Again, this quality of dynamic equilibrium, deeply at rest, and at the same time vigilant. Calm, soothe the conceptual mind, the obsessive, compulsive flow of thinking. With every out-breath, relaxing more and more deeply, releasing the breath all the way through. And this mindfulness of breathing.
in this simple practice of shamatha, we're resting primarily in the flow of cognizance, of sim- simply being aware of what is arising in this world of actuality, the sensations of the breath, and other practices of thoughts arising, the space of the mind, or even awareness itself. But now as we venture into the practice of Tonglen, or the cultivation of bodhicitta, we draw on the luminous faculty, the luminous capacity of awareness, which is a source of imagination, of visualization, all the clear manifestations of the mind. following the classic practice of Donglen. Let's invite now into the space of our awareness. Our own mother, of course by way of mental images, but we're attending not just to those images, but to our own mother by way of the mental images. Whether your mother is still, a living, still alive or has passed away, the continuum of her consciousness continues manifesting in another form, perhaps. But still the continuum is there. The connection, the karmic connection, is still there. So bring to mind your own mother as you know her, or if she's passed away, as you knew her when she was alive. Bring her vividly to mind and attend closely to her. Now using selective memory, for we have so many memories, most of us, of our own mother, our engagement and experiences with her. Direct your awareness back to the past, to your earliest memories, and selectively focus on those experiences of your mother and those acts of kindness that she's shown to you. Whether you're clearly aware of them from your own experience, your own memory, or simply know that she must have shown you the kindness of carrying you in the womb, of giving birth to you, of nursing you, taking care of you as an infant. Focus specifically and selectively on those acts of kindness your mother has shown you from the time you were conceived. Dwell there, linger there on these acts of kindness without which you would not be here today or have your present opportunity.
and bring your awareness up to the present. If your mother is alive, attend to her as she is now. Attend to her joys and sorrows, her hopes and fears, the challenges she faces in life. Once again, symbolically visualize the pristine purity of your own awareness, of pristine awareness itself as this orb of light at your heart, an inexhaustible source of light. And now mount your practice of Tonglen on each in and out breath. As you breathe in, imagine, as you arouse the aspiration of compassion, the wish that she may be free of suffering and its causes, whether in this lifetime or in her next lifetime, either way, as you breathe in, imagine drawing in the darkness of her suffering and the causes of suffering. Drawing this into your heart, dissolving it there without trace. With each in-breath and with each out-breath, arousing the aspiration of loving-kindness, may you, like myself, find happiness in the causes of happiness and breathe out the light from your heart, filling, suffusing her, filling her with a sense of well-being and joy that she seeks. With each in-breath, with each out-breath, draw in the darkness and extinguish it without the light from your heart and let it fill her.
Imagine her free, free of all suffering. Imagine her realizing her heart's desire, finding freedom, fully awakening. Now let the appearance of your mother fade back into the space of your mind. And now for the remainder of the session, simply let your attention rove. See who comes to mind, whether your father, a sibling, a friend, a loved one, or some individuals far away, or communities of individuals. Let your attention rove. Then alight where you will. Let your awareness come to rest where you will. Focus clearly. Practices we've done with each in and out breath. Let's continue practicing now in silence.
Golazo. I have a thing against wearing dirty clothes, and I just saw a spot on my shirt. So now you don't get a look at it. Golazo. So let's return to the text. So this practice of Donglen clearly is an integration of the cultivation of compassion and of loving kindness. And as you recall, Padmasambhava, uh, that is uh, Atisha, said rather ironically, only you Tibetans know how to develop bodhicitta without the cultivation of the four immeasurables. So he was being ironic. And I think it's qu quite clear, some of you have been to retreats here or re other retreats, shorter retreats on the four immeasurables. So I think it's quite clear that the more you've cultivated those, each one of those distinctly and separately, and seen the balance among them, the, the loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity, the more there is a cultivation of kind of the grassroots of the four immeasurables. Then you have a foundation for cultivating the great compassion, great loving kindness, and so forth, and then the synthesis of these in the practice of the Donglen. So over the last day or so, then we've covered a short explanation an analysis, so to speak, of compassion. And I'd like to move now to loving-kindness and again go back to the analysis by Buddha Gosa. But first of all, draw a distinction uh, between loving-kindness and attachment. And again, just as the English word compassion, for many people, including top-notch psychologists, it does mean an emotion. And I, wanted, and I emphasized yesterday Buddhism is not refuting them. It's not saying, oh, no, you have understanding of compassion wrong. Uh, they're simply defining it differently, and it has its own legitimacy within their own context. Just like attachment. I've spoken on, on occasion about attachment theory in modern psychology. It's very smart. It's very good. Secure attachment, anxious attachment, and then avoidance. Um, it's very smart. It's very good psychology, and they're using attachment here, secure attachment, in a positive way. That The Buddhists would also say, oh, yeah, that's, that's very healthy. So attachment will be defined differently and is defined differently in modern psychology, often with a positive spin. And there's no refutation here. It's just being using the words differently. And likewise, whereas compassion in the Western context often is an emotion, uh, it's not in Buddhism, but they're simply using their terms differently. And then likewise for love, this great big four-letter term that covers everything from chocolate, loving chocolate and sports cars and loving beautiful sunsets and loving women and handsome men, and loving one's guru and one's mother, and loving God. So that's a pretty big spectrum, from dark chocolate to God. I think that covers a lot of territory in between. Right? So it often means nothing more than attachment. And it, when, if, I, if I'm not actually really attached to dark chocolate, but I like it, and I might say, oh, I really love that, oh, that Belgian chocolate. I really love that. You know? I might say that. All it means is I like it a lot. <laughs> you know, it gives me pleasure. And so loving kindness clearly is not simply liking a lot. And then also love often does really mean attachment. I love my car. You know, a person has a really, I, I knew somebody, I think he really loved his Porsche. And that was really strong attachment, really strong attachment. One may have very strong attachment to another person, one's reputation, one's wealth, and so forth. And there I love, I love, I love, I love my house and so forth. That's just flat out attachment. You know? I see that as a source of my happiness. I will hold on to my dying breath. So. See, we see this term, then, it has a lot of variations of meaning. 
But then when we're cultivating loving kindness, or maitri in Sanskrit, then it's crucially important to recognize exactly what's meant here. I see my computer's spitting up here, so... There we go, thank you. So, but it's a crucial distinction, and as we'll see when we go to the, the near enemy of loving kindness, it's enormously important to have a clear conceptual understanding, the conceptual understanding being kind of your launching pad or your point of departure to be able in your own experience, in a human relationship, to distinguish, ah, there at 505, I was responding to spouse, child, friend, and so forth, that was attachment. But at 510, there I was responding with loving kindness. Because actually they're very, very different, but they may appear to be very similar. So the distinction is really quite simple. It's not complex. And that is loving kindness is this heartfelt aspiration, the sense of affection, of warmth, of real connectedness, a yearning, may you find happiness. And may you not only find the fruit, but also find the cause. May you, find, may you really find, cultivate, uh, develop that which will give rise to the happiness you seek. So wishing them well. Okay? So it's both, but it's very much effect and cause. Yearning may you find happiness and the causes of happiness. As the Buddha himself says in the Pali Canon, this loving kindness should start with oneself. And especially in our modern world, it seems Eurocentric, it seems to have stemmed out of Europe and then flown into oh, well, all Eurocentric civilizations. And now, lo and behold, we find it in Mongolia. This whole issue of low self-esteem, self-contempt, self-hatred, self-loathing, lack of self-worth. We have many, many words for it, like the Eskimos have many words for snow. Uh, it seems to be a very, very large problem, and so I won't elaborate on this, but I was in Mongolia just a few weeks ago, and I asked, so we were out, out in the countryside in a ger, a yurt, where I was holding a one-week retreat, and uh, I asked, oh, do, do people experience low self-esteem? Do you know what I'm talking about? And to my somewhat surprise, they said, oh, yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah, we, we experience that. I said, when did that start? Is that part of your culture for a long time? They said, no, it's since the Stalin era. Since the Stalin era. Since the invasion of Euro, Eurocentric ideas and mentality and so forth. They got it by way of Stalin. Other people get it by way of other aspects of modern civilization. But without elaborating further on that point, especially insofar as we do suffer, and, and many, many of us do to varying extents, to some extent it can be crippling, low self-esteem and that whole bandwidth of really not liking oneself, or one very sad way of expressing it is, if people knew me better, they would like me less. That pretty well sums it up, I think. So therefore, I'll, I'll keep my guard up, make sure people don't get to know me very well, otherwise I'll lose all my friends. Right? So that clearly is an expression of low self-esteem. Or imagine if one said that to another person, this person over here, I'm going to make sure I'm not pointing at anybody, if people knew you better, they wouldn't like you anymore. That's really very cruel, isn't it? That's a really mean thing to say. If people got to know you better, they wouldn't like you anymore. Well, that's an expression of hostility, right? And so it's no less an expression of hostility if we feel it about ourselves. So in this way, the teachings of the Buddha, one who loves himself will never harm another. Becomes all, if that was relevant 2,500 years ago, and that's when he said it, and all the more relevant now. So I think the, the modern Vipassana tradition, which often teaches Vipassana together with metta, metta bhavana, they're really spot on. I really congratulate them for emphasizing love and kindness, emphasizing love and kindness for oneself. They've really recognized a modern malady that wasn't always so prevalent. It wasn't nearly so prevalent in Tibet. It was hardly, hardly even known in Tibet. 
But it's a really good emphasis, this loving kindness for oneself. And of course, not staying there and not just having this kind of warm, cuddly feeling about oneself, but genuinely in a warm, friendly, and affectionate way, yearning for oneself. May you find happiness in the causes of happiness. And then that is your kind of your beachhead as your point of departure. Then extending it out to loved ones, to family, to friends, to more casual friends, to people who are simply business associates, people use ca casual encounters, and then all the way out to the outer extreme of people that really have harmed you, where there may be some real negative feeling, and extending it out until it goes in all directions without barrier. And all the barriers are broken down, so they're simply the, the heart is evenly open, evenly warm, even sense of connectedness, of warmth, kindness, and affection in all directions, including for the greatest evildoers that you can think of or you encounter. It's still there, not condoning their behavior, of course, that would be foolishness, but still seeing through all the layers of delusion and the behavior that comes from it and wishing them well. May you find happiness and the causes of happiness, the genuine causes of happiness. And now we know, we know, we know what we're looking at. It's virtue, right? It's mental balance, it's virtue, it's, and so forth. So that whole sense of connectedness, I mean, something that just sprang to mind was a statement, it was a response to His Holiness in response to the question, your holiness, do you ever feel lonely? Lonely. And he said, never. I never feel lonely. How is that possible? You never feel lonely. And the answer is, oh, he said, whether I'm in solitude or whether I'm with others, I always feel a sense of connectedness with those around me. So I never feel lonely. And there's a corollary statement, another one of my, I, I, I just love these real short ones. Um, someone quite some years ago asked his holiness, holiness, whom do you regard as your peers? Like in Tibet, there's only one Dalai Lama. Right? There's the Penjil Lama, that's one step down, and there's a whole hierarchy. Tibetans have a lot of hierarchy. Um, a lot of hierarchy. But there's just nobody up there. The, the Dalai, there's only one Dalai Lama. Right? It, it, that's it. And so somebody asked him, well, who's your peer? They might have been thinking, okay, maybe Pope, maybe President, maybe Prime Minister here and there, maybe another saint, maybe, maybe Nelson Mandela, or so they were kind of, I'm sure they were wondering, going through their, their Rolodex, so be, okay, who would be the Dalai Lama's peer? But they just asked him, who do you regard as your peers? And his answer, everybody. So, quintessentially. The words of this simple Buddhist monk. So, so loving kindness is that. It's actually not complicated at all, but it is really an aspiration. It's tending to another person. A sentient being doesn't have to be a human being. It can be an animal. It can be any type of sentient being. And that heartfelt wish, may you find happiness. And the causes of happiness, then great loving kindness, Mahamaitri, is where then one actually takes on the responsibility. I shall do this. But the, the, the root system of that sense of I better go all the way down to your Buddha nature because nothing else will be sufficient, right? Covered that yesterday. Attachment, self-centered attachment. Self-centered attachment can look in terms of behavior, verbal expression, body language, facial expression, things we, do, things we do for another person, it can look an awful lot like expressions of loving kindness, right? Give you a really good facsimile. And, uh, and that's what makes self-centered attachment so kind of tricky and devious. Because self-centered attachment, as the, as the word implies, while loving kindness is really all about the person one is attending to, 
self-centered attachment is really all about oneself, and the other person is an instrument to one's own well-being. So one may shower praise and words of kindness, words of affection, uh, acts of generosity, acts of service, all kinds of things. I read about one woman, in fact, I just mentioned to one of you, a woman who was an heiress. She had inherited a great fortune. She just passed away at the age of 104 with $300 million left to be scrambled over by people that believe they deserve it. But she spent something like the last 50 years or maybe longer in a hospital while she was in perfectly good health. She went to the hospital because she was ill. She's very famous now. She's in the news because she just died at age of 104. But she got really ill. She went to the hospital, got totally recovered. But she was alone, had no husband, family, children, anything. And she just liked it in the hospital so much that she stayed there for the rest of her life. A long life, like 60 years or so. She spent $400,000 a year to stay in the hospital. Uh, Now, why do I mention this? Well, the, the people who ran the hospital, they saw her. They actually said, we've got a juicy one here. We've got a juicy one. So the director of the hospital then sent his mother in to hang out with her and watch soap operas and and chum up with her and cozy up with her to be really good friends because they asked her for $120 million. So it looked like, oh, wow, the people in this hospital are so friendly. They're so loving. They're so affectionate. The director even encourages mother to spend time with me. How kind, how kind. And eventually they sent her the little request after they chummied up with her. Oh, by the way, would you mind um, giving us $120 million? And she was very astute. She looked at it. And no, when she died, she gave him $1 million. They were very disappointed. You know? So that, I think, is that, that was just in the news recently. Uh, that is a case where it can really look like they did their best imitation. We really care about you. We want you to be happy. We want you to, you know, you're close to our hearts. Uh, write us a great big check, please. So, something kind of devious about that. And it happens, that was a rather large scale. One country may deal with that with another country. Oh, let's send some foreign aid. We love you, we love you, we love you. By the way, can we have your oil? Or, well, we always want it. We all know, we know that. I don't need to elaborate. But it's on the micro level, one person to another person. It's on the international level. Show you a lot of kindness, and then you're waiting. Okay, now what do you want? You know, it can make one very cynical when one sees so many displays that look like they're coming from real affection, real concern, genuine loving kindness. And they're not at all. It's really coming out of self-centered attachment. So it looks cut and dried. Self-centered attachment is really about oneself. I'm using you as an instrument because I want something. I want $120 million from you. You'll still have a couple hundred million left. That should be enough. I want a big chunk. We've been taking care of you. Of course, you gave us 400000 a year. That was okay. Um, it kind of looks clean, cut and dried. Like, that's loving kindness here, and this is self-centered attachment there. And they are very different. In fact, I would say at the same, in the same moment, they won't be both active. In one moment, as you're engaging with another person, what may be, may be there will be, could be loving kindness. But if it is, it's not self-centered attachment. And if it's self-centered attachment, it's not loving kindness. In the words of Martin Buber, the great existentialist philosopher, if it's loving kindness, it's an IU relationship. You're engaging subject to subject recognizing this person here has joys and sorrows, hopes and fears like yourself, and you're engaging with that person as a subject like yourself, wishing that person well because that person is a person like yourself. 
Whereas as soon as it's a self as soon as we relate to another person with self-centered attachment, then it's an I-it relationship. It's really very, very clear, very sharp terminology. An I-it relationship. Even though the person there is a you, is a person, not an it, we're treating that person as an, as an it. We're treating that person like a pair of eyeglasses. I got this eyeglasses not to do something nice for the eye. I don't, when I clean the eyeglasses, I'm not doing it because I'm feeling such affection for the eyeglasses. It's just, you're here to serve me. You're an it. You're doing a pretty good job. That's it. But any care I give to the eyeglasses or to a car, etc., etc., it is and it should be an I-it relationship because there's nobody looking back. Right? That's fine. So treating its as its is really good. Treating its as you's is really weird. You know, when you call your motorcycle by a woman's name, you know, some people ha love their Harleys, I think, maybe a bit too much. Harley-Davidson, where they keep them in, in the living room. So we can actually treat its as you's, like the brain, treating that as a you, when it's an it. Motorcycles, it's. We know the whole range of it's. And the you's are sentient beings. So we treat the you's as you's and the it's as it's and everything is good. But self-centered attachment treats a you as an it. And it may also treat an it as a you. So. So la so. But now I said, so verbally, just, just talking about it like that, okay, this is clear. Conceptually, this is not terribly complicated. One can see how one could appear in the guise of another, and it's quite devious and misleading. But in our actual lived human relationships, like a spousal relationship, I'm one of those people, I'm one of those spouses. So I'll speak just first person. Do I have an attachment for my wife? Yes or yes, I do. Do I have loving kindness for my wife? Definitely, I'm sure. So now what is it? Well, at 505 it's this, and at 507 it's that. And that's where you really see. That's where you see. So, and it's parent-child relationship, a lot. I have a grandson. Do I have attachment for my grandson? Yes, definitely. Do I love my grandson? Definitely, yes. But then at 505, 506, and so forth, see which is operative, because there's a real shift of access. It's about me, it's about you. It's about me, it's about you. It's quite interesting. So let's just go briefly now to Buddhaghosa's analysis of this. I think it's quite brilliant, as it is for all four of the four immeasurables, as he breaks these down, or in the Theravada tradition, the Pali Canon, it's called the four Brahma Biharas, the four divine abidings. So he speaks here of something I've just been discussing for the last few minutes, and that is the near enemy of loving kindness, that which appears to be loving kindness. Looks an awful lot like loving kindness, and it's not. Okay? And that is, so, self-centered attachment. So this is the near enemy, because it's a facsimile, it can be easily mistaken for, but in fact, insofar as we're cultivating attachment for some person, uh, then we're not cultivating loving kindness, we're actually cultivating something quite, at its core, antithetical to loving kindness. This is why the conceptual understanding is so important. First get it clear conceptually, and then, this is quite an adventure, it's a, a real adventure of self-discovery. As we see in our relationship, we might say, oh, but I simply love my wife. That's right. Well, well, you do. That's good. I love my children, love my parents, love my siblings, and so forth and so on. Yeah, you do. That's good. No problem. But now what exactly do you mean by that? Isn't that an umbrella term? I love my. Isn't that an umbrella term that covers two very different processes? Self-centered attachment and loving kindness. And then seeing one as an affliction, and one you can perfect in Buddhahood 
all the way through you're perfecting it, right? There's, just, there's no such thing as loving somebody too much. There is such a thing as having too much attachment for a person. And they're totally different. But then in experience, seeing, aha, that was clearly self-centered attachment. I'll linger there just a little bit more. Geshe Raptan, who was a monk from the age of 19, never had a girlfriend, let alone wife or children. But I think he spoke with a lot of insight when he commented in a parent-child relationship, for example. There's bound to be attachment. My child. There's bound to be also, in any healthy relationship, there's bound to be a lot of loving kindness. Genuine love, concern for the child's well-being. But he commented that if at some point as the child grows up in the modern world, in modernity, is often adolescence, where as an object of attachment, they're not doing that well anymore. I, when uh, A girlfriend I had a long, long time ago, before I became a monk, and now we're just have a nice, nice friendship. But there was a... I've, I said somebody, maybe... Um, okay. It's, I think no damage. Um, but you don't know who she is anyway. But there was just a phase when her daughter would repeat, kind of repeat, re- repeat the mantra, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, when she in his teenage years. Okay? So if that was something really peculiar, like psychopathic behavior on the part of her daughter, then you know, I shouldn't talk about it at all. But not that crazy, not that common. It's, it's you know, just rebellious sense of a teenager. And sometimes that's the way it gets mad at, oh, I hate you, I hate you. Okay. And so we know in modernity especially, it's not so uncommon for teenagers to display behavior, or perhaps sometimes even physical appearance, that is not entirely appealing to their parents. It's a safe statement. Um, In which case, an object of attachment has to be attractive, has to be something you regard as, this gives me pleasure, whether it's your car, whether it's a house, whether it's a person. But a teenager, they sometimes seem to go out of their way not to give us pleasure. They're striking out on their own, they're being independent, sometimes obnoxious, and so forth and so on. So Geshe Raptan's point here was that, so as the child, like I have an eight-year-old adorable grandson, I mean, there he is, he's just incredibly charming, sweet, affectionate, very handsome little boy, too. Very easy to be an object of attachment. Very easy. Because, oh, it gives me so much pleasure. I just saw him on Skype a couple of days ago. A lot of happiness comes, just seeing him. And then they get older. And appearances change, behavior change. He said, especially if they start engaging in some really negative behavior, maybe they start hanging out with really the wrong kind, gangs, drugs, violence, some other really nasty stuff that teenagers sometimes get into, where there's just not much manifesting there at all that's agreeable, that makes you proud, that makes you happy, makes you feel content, makes you feel you were a good job as a pa- did a good job as a parent. Because you say, man, this is awful. And everything is coming is like, oh, it's like a disaster area. He said, when that happens, if that happens, or to the extent that it happens, he said, insofar as your response is a sense of distancing, pulling away, a cooling, then that is an indicator that what you felt for the child prior to the manifestation of that type of disagreeable behavior, perhaps even disagreeable appearance, that's an indicator that what you experienced primar- pri- prior to that was primarily attachment. So it, the, the child was an object of attachment, very appealing, very cute, very adorable, very attractive, make, gives you a lot of happiness, and then doesn't, and pulling back. What's being pulled back is attachment. 
Whereas he said prior to that, disagreeable behavior, when the child is still a child, let's say, if the primary way of engaging, attending to, nice word, the primary way of engaging with attending to the child was truly loving kindness, with attachment maybe off to the side, but primarily loving kindness, then when the child begins to misbehave, engage in really harmful behavior, and perhaps even doesn't look that great either, if there's an increasing sense of closeness, increasing sense of concern, a care of love, then that's a good indicator. What you felt prior to that was mostly loving kindness, because that's what's showing its face now. The mask is off. Well, that's loving kindness then. You really do genuinely care about the child, and now you really care lovingly, affectionately. Oh, may you be free from this kind of behavior. This will really harm you. May you be free. Real affection. So I thought that was so wise from a person who never had any children. So there's the near enemy, quite clear. The far enemy, the distant enemy, that which is diametrically opposed. Well, again, we can do this just ling linguistically. Linguistically. And that is, okay, what is loving kindness? The aspiration, may you find happiness and the causes of happiness. What's the opposite of that? May you not find happiness and not find the causes of happiness. And if it slips into intent, not only kind of an aspiration, of course, there's a difference between aspiration and intent, right? A desire and intent. Uh, when it slips into intent, then it's ill will. It's ill will. And that is, if I can prevent you from having happiness, I'll do it. If I can prevent you from encountering the causes of happiness, I'll be there to block. So that's malice. That's malice. Malice is diametrically opposed to loving kindness. So cruelty was, may you find suffering and the causes of suffering. Really sharp, really incredibly toxic. Malice is not much better. It's just saying, may you not find happiness. Not find happiness and not find the causes of happiness. So that's called ill will. It's malice, diametrically opposed. Okay. Quite, so no one would mistake that for loving kindness. At least it's nice and honest. It's mean, it's toxic. It's really toxic. But at least it's not dishonest, it's not misleading. It won't be misread. If you show malice towards a person, people will know it. So the proximate cause is very interesting. The proximate cause, the immediate trigger, what catalyzes the sense of loving kindness for another, or it could be for oneself, is, according to Buddha Gosa, it's seeing the lovableness, the lovableness in beings. Now, now again, distinguishing between loving kindness and mere attachment, being attracted to someone because they're beautiful, because they have a sense of great sense of humor, because they're very cheerful, um, because they treat you nicely. All kinds of reasons we can be attached to another person, attracted to another person as a very agreeable object who gives us pleasure. Uh, seeing the lovableness in another person is clearly not the same as seeing the attractiveness of another person. Right? Quite different. The attractiveness of an object, like a really nice car, a statue, a painting, uh, and the lovableness of a sentient being. It could be an animal, it could be a human being, but the lovableness. Seeing there something worthy of love, that arouses affection, moves the heart, seeing deeper. It's not looking at surfaces. Attachment really is looking at surfaces. And loving kindness is attending to a subject, an individual. Where this really cuts home, I think, in the modern world is when you look into the mirror or you just think about yourself. 
whether you see anything, anything comes to mind that is lovable. There's so much emphasis in our very materialistic world on making oneself look attractive. All the things people do with their faces, and we all know about it, even just the makeup and all of that. Trying to be appear attractive, appear attractive. Entirely different strategy, entirely different agenda uh, from being lovable. And one doesn't need to try. In the Buddhist understanding, you don't need to try to be lovable. If you do, then you're trying to make an impression. It's probably an I-it relationship. You're trying to appear lovable to another person so they'll treat you in a certain way. And so it's back to self-centered attachment. So the lovableness quality is not something that is, that is generated with a lot of effort. It's something deeper, something one sees with the eyes of wisdom, the eyes of empathy. And one should be able to see it within oneself. If one hasn't, one should look more deeply. So, the meditative cultivation of loving kindness, it succeeds when you simply see that malice subsides. Any impulse, again, as with cruelty, any impulse for another person not to find happiness, not to be, not to be appreciated, not to be loved, not to be respected, not to have good fortune, not, 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 not. All the things this person wants to find happiness, you don't want them to succeed. Any impulse in that way, subsiding, oh, that's good. That means your practice of loving kindness, it's working. It's subduing that which is diametrically opposed. And then, of course, you can predict that the cultivation of loving kindness fails when it produces nothing more than selfish affection. That is, you do feel affection for another person, but there's all kinds of strings attached. I'm showing you my affection. Now, are you showing me affection? I said I love you. Now, where's the echo? I did something nice for you. Now, what are you going to do for me? I gave you a big gift at Christmas. What's coming for my birthday? Etc. So then that's just selfish attachment. So then a brief comment. This is from the classic commentaries on Donglen itself, this practice. Donglen, the sending and the taking, the sending and receiving. So in, this cl- in the classic practice, as I mentioned before, we did it classically, uh, focusing on one's mother. So this is very classic practice. It comes through oh, many, many bodhicitta teachings on the cultivation of bodhicitta where you attend to your own mother, you recall the kindness of your own mother, you arouse the aspiration to repay the kindness of your mother, and so you're doing that in a nuclear sense, you and your mother, and then you go supernova, that is, within this Buddhist worldview, then you regard, oh, that's my mother in this lifetime, but then all these sentient beings around me, at some point or another, they've all been my mother, and so then going supernova, that same sense of affection, of warmth, of gratitude, the wish to repay, the kindness of one's own mother, then one extends to everyone around. So this is a lovely thought when you're sitting down, you're about to have your meal. So you may offer it to the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, all very good. It's all very good also as you're sitting down to have your meal, to reflect upon all the sentient beings, independence upon whom you're able to sit down and just serve yourself and eat. Uh, but then saying, all right, I'm taking this in, but now with the nourishment that I get from this, the energy, the sustenance, then may I use that energy to repay your kindness. And if one is a flesh eater, then all the more so. Repay the kindness of the animal whose flesh you are eating. At least create some karmic bond there of benevolence. So, without lingering there, so the teaching here, imagine first your mother in the space in front of you, just to read through it, and then extend this out gradually to all other sentient beings, 
cultivating loving kindness, compassion, recalling the kindness, taking on the responsibility. Here's where, with respect to your mother, it takes on the quality of great loving kindness. Take upon yourself, which is quite appropriate for a child to a parent, taking upon yourself the responsibility of bringing your mother all manner of happiness, protecting her from harm. And then something I've not mentioned thus far, but it is part of the classic teachings. And that is, and this, this I don't teach unless I'm going to be around for a while and can continue to engage with the people I've taught the meditation. But it is part of the classic teachings on Tonglen, where you imagine not simply taking in darkness, symbolically, and imagine it, the, the burden of suffering and its underlying causes, including mental afflictions. Imagine them evaporating, drifting away or drawing in and simply incinerating them in the light at your heart. Not only that, but actually in the full-fledged practice of Tonglen, the classic practice, you actually imagine taking upon yourself the suffering itself and the underlying causes. You imagine them coming and experiencing them. You imagine taking on that suffering. Well, especially where there's very intense suffering, especially if it's not only one person. How about one million child refugees from Syria on the borders of Turkey, on the borders, border of, of Jordan, and so on? Uh, to imagine that, and, imagine, and then to imagine it, and then to actually wish. This is where it gets very heavy very quickly, and this is why one really wants to practice with a lot of sensitivity so you don't simply become overwhelmed, which can very easily happen. Actually arousing the aspiration, the suffering you experience, may that ripen upon me. And actually wishing it. Even for one person, that's difficult. But actually wishing it. May you be free. And if that affliction, if that suffering, if that distress... If it needs to go somewhere, well, then I take it from you. I take it upon myself. And actually wishing that. That's the nature of this practice, when it's really full-fledged, totally classic practice. So, and then taking it on, one does then not just carry on afterwards, carrying this, imagining, carrying this immense burden of other suffering. One takes it on, and then one does imagine it, dissolving into and vanishing into the light at one's heart. It is said the measure of success of, of Tonglen, so we've already looked at measure of success for loving kindness, malice subsides, of compassion, cruelty subsides. The measure of success of doing this practice is actually being able to take on or genuinely willing to take on another person's suffering without regard for oneself. Actually having that selfless, aspiration to take upon another person, upon oneself another person's suffering. So that's a practice of Donglen. Very deep. It's actually a very advanced practice. And it's good to, again, till the soil, cultivate the ground of loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy and equanimity as a foundation for this, to venture into the cultivation of great compassion, great loving kindness, because this is then bringing together really the great compassion, great loving kindness, which will then naturally lead to the extraordinary resolve and then to bodhicitta itself. So this is a very concise path, a very short path, just as Atisha's account of ultimate bodhicitta was just, a, what, four or five aphorisms, boom, 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 and it was finished. And that was it. That was his complete instruction. For 
realizing ultimate bodhicitta, likewise for relative bodhicitta. Very concise, very to the point, and drawing on these very, very powerful practices. So in the next aphorism, we can finish quite quickly, and we'll have time, I think, for discussion today, or at least, I'll at least finish these questions from uh, Beata. The next aphorism, having concluded the previous one, uh, is mount them, upon, mount them both, the tong and the len, the sending and the taking upon oneself, mount them both upon your breath. So this is what we did. Now, this again takes a little bit of practice, just like learning to play a piece of music. And this is why for the last day or two, maybe it's been, uh, then we lingered. So for 12, 15 minutes, we just cultivated the compassion. Imagine taking, a, t- that is drawing in, drawing in. And then after doing that for 10 minutes or, or longer, then the sending out. So gradually, so we can really linger there, right? But as you get into the stride of that, you get familiar with that, more accustomed to that, then you actually can pick up the pace. And so that with each out-breath, you are genuinely having that sense because loving kindness and compassion are really two sides of the same coin. Uh, as you're breathing out, breathing out with loving kindness and breathing out the light. And then as the breath flows in, just so naturally, the flip side of that. And may you be free. May you be free of suffering and its causes. And breathing in the darkness, extinguishing it, breathing out, breathing in. So then, that's kind of supercharged mindfulness of breathing, right? Where it's so richly endowed, so richly filled with the cultivation of loving kindness and compassion. This practice is, I found, not only very helpful while sitting quietly in your own room, in your meditation time, um, but in day-to-day life, just engaging with people. Especially as you leave here. On occasion here, you'll probably find, encounter someone who's, as you're engaging with them, experiencing a lot of distress. Something's come up. Or, even without distress, just attending to another person, even here, and quietly, without any verbalization, just from breath to breath, breathing out loving kindness, breathing in compassion, breathing out loving kindness, breathing compassion. You can do that. And people outside won't know anything, probably, at least not on a coarse level. That is, you're not doing mudras, you're not saying something, you're not liturgy, you're not saying, hey, I'm doing something really special here, look at me. Nothing of the sort. It's all quiet. It's an inside job. So one can do it here, but where it can be especially helpful when we step out and we're socially much more engaged uh, throughout the course of the day when we are here, where so much of our time is spent in solitude. It can be so helpful uh, just to quietly be attending to another person. And for example, when I'm traveling a lot, as everybody who travels a lot by airplane, I spend a fair amount of time waiting in lounges or waiting by the you know, place to go onto the airplane. And you see people all around you. They're all over the place. You know? And you watch facial expression, look at body language. And really good opportunity. Evenly. They're old, young, attractive, unattractive, fat, skinny, everything. And just quietly there in the airport. Quietly there in the grocery market. Quietly there, wherever you may be. Attending closely, just quietly. Again, not so obviously that people think, oh, why are you staring at me? Because you know, people, especially a man, can be, they can be a bit threatened if you're a man. Less so, I think, if you're a woman. But just very quietly, very softly, gently, attending. And then just quietly, sending out the light of loving kindness and with compassion, just arousing the union. May you be free. May you be free. Very, you can do this 
at any time, for 15 seconds there and 30 seconds there. You know? Very practical, thorough integration, really bringing this into daily life. It's very, very practical. And then another, another place, if, I don't know if you ever watch the news on television or other media, the internet or what have you, uh, and you can just be reading, newspaper, magazine, internet, but learning about just the latest stuff, and of course we know most of the news is bad. It's either evil or it's natural calamities, it's suffering of one kind or another. Most of the news is, is troubling. But instead of feeling helpless or feeling apathetic, not my problem, Oh, I'm glad I don't live there, that kind of thing. Distancing, right? Or just feeling, I can't do anything, so I shouldn't care. I mean, why should I care if I can't do anything? Instead of going into those two default modes, which I think is very common, it's not my problem, I'm not going to think about it, it's really depressing. Or if I think about it, I can't do anything anyway, so then now I am depressed. Apathy or depression, is there a third option? If you can do something, of course, very good. Then do. Help. Be practical. But faced with the enormity of the problems that are just coming up every day in the news, the notion that even if you're a Bill Gates or a Carlos Slim and you have tens of billions of dollars at your disposal, well, if they tried to do everything, they would be poor very, very quickly because somebody's going to need their money and would be very happy to have it. And they'll, they'll have none very, very quickly. So no matter how much your resources are, even if your whole government well, you're always limited. So there's going to come a point, whether you're an incredibly wealthy person or have hardly any resources, where you say, I, I really can't do anything here. Practically speaking, I don't have any ability. Maybe it's not even money. Maybe it's something else that would be required, and I don't have the skills. I don't have the background. And so it's very easy to think, I can't do anything at all. Wrong. You can. You can practice Donglen. You can practice Donglen. That you can do. Whether it's for five million refugees, whether it's people suffering from any matter of, of, of circumstances, any kind of adversity. Or striving. You find you know, people really striving for happiness. They're implementing new policies. Not everything that governments do is bad. Sometimes they really do something very good. You know, and you say, oh, they're really trying to help. They're really trying to help. So it's not just in response to people suffering, but also in response to Government, communities, individuals yearning, they're striving to do something good, to find greater happiness, to alleviate suffering, and then practicing the loving kindness. So there, it's really a way of transmuting. One's a way of engaging with individuals from day to day, but also just what's happening globally. And we really are, I mean, I feel this very strongly, and with no negativity, there's nobody to, fault, there's nobody to blame. Uh, but we are, we in the modern society, we're running an experiment on ourselves that is unprecedented in the one or 200,000 year history of the Homo sapiens sapiens. That's how long this distinct species has been around, I understand. But for how long we've been here, tens of thousands of years, it's really only like the last century or so that we've run this really intense experiment on ourselves. And if somebody actually done it to us from outside, I think they'd have a real problem with the law. What are, uh, human subjects, that they, there's some criteria for doing scientific research on people. You have, to, you have to run this by screening committees. Is this okay to do this, or is this violating their rights? Could this be endangering them? So I've, I've done, I participate in a lot of scientific studies, and this issue comes up. Is this okay? And they run it by a committee, human subjects committee. 
is this ethical to treat people like this? And sometimes this, the psychological studies done on people has not been ethical. Some famous studies, but I won't go into that, too much of a tangent. But we're running kind of an experiment on ourselves that I think probably would not pass a human subjects committee. They would say, no, I'm afraid this, this could be really harmful, and I think we can't let you do that. And what I'm referring to is the unprecedented massive exposure that people like ourselves, who, are, who are, have, have all the media at our fingertips, radio, television, newspapers, and internet, and we're exposed like never before in the history of humanity to the amount of bad news that's coming up every day. You know? I mean, in Europe, just a couple of centuries ago, people, many people would never travel more than 10 miles from their home in their whole lives. So the bad news was in that circumference of 10 miles. You know, village life in Germany 120 years ago, or pretty much anywhere else. A lot of people, they, they wouldn't have the money to travel, probably not the interest to travel, so the bad news was very local. Oh, yeah, John's cousin, yeah, I know, yeah, I heard about him, lives in the next village over there. Oh, that's really too bad. And that would be the kind of the extent. Sometimes a bubonic plague swept through, okay, big deal, but it's still local as far as you're concerned. Whereas now, everything that comes up, a, 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 bus, a bus crashes in China and kills 30 people, it's on the news. You'll hear about it. You know. One more shooting. One more shooting. This person just killed four people. I heard just recently, if a mass killing is called killing four people or more, in the, this year in America alone, uh, apparently it's something like 260 days have gone by, there have been 250 mass killings in the United States this year. So almost one every day. Okay? Well, a lot of those, the bigger ones, make the news. So humanity has never been exposed to this much information on a regular basis every day, to the acts of hatred, of violence, of bigotry, of prejudice, of greed, and then the sheer natural calamities. It's nobody's fault at all. You know, tsunamis and things like that. And so nobody did it to us. Nobody's to blame. But how, since we really weren't prepared for this, I don't think we were prepared for this. What prepared us to, to be suddenly, within a century, exposed to, psychologically exposed to that much horrendously bad news and for people like myself who watch the, read the news every day, uh, what's to prepare us for that? I don't think we are prepared at all. And it's so easy to go one of two routes, either depression, because there's so much to be depressed about, reality-based depression, or reality-based apathy. Is I don't care anymore, or burnout, burnout. So those are two major options, because we weren't prepared for this kind of experiment to be run on us by these you know, human species. And so I think you have to be very creative. This is my opinion. But I think we have to be really smart, really quick to be able to not just turn, turn it off. I mean, some people say, okay, I, I figured this out. I'm getting rid of my television. I'm not checking out the internet. I'm not looking at the news. It's depressing. I'm just going to mind my own business. Not my problem. And then turn off. And she said, I don't want to hear about it. It's not my problem. Yeah. In other words, trying to slip back a couple of hundred years so you're living in a 10-mile radius again. Well, that's called ignorance, I think, in today's world. So how can we not withdraw, go into dissociation from the planet, not fall into depression, not fall into apathy? I think Donglen's a pretty good key. It's not the whole solution, but I think it's really something. Because it's very clear, practicing Donglen is not doing nothing. Not doing nothing. So I, think it's very, I think it's very powerful teaching. We can always do something, at the very least, 
Even if we can't do anything tangible, practical, we can practice Dongmen. And that's more than nothing, a lot more than nothing. Then Dingo Kensetenbuchi, in his commentary that I strongly, heartily recommend, Enlightened Courage, I think, uh, actually, the Kunsonia uh, asked me, uh, people would like more books, which, which, more, which ones more shall we order? And I suggested his book, among a couple of others. But he wrote in his Enlightened Courage, with respect to this practice of Donglen, he said, don't be dismayed if your mind becomes clouded and obscurations seem to increase. This is not a bad sign. He's speaking about the full-fledged Donglen practice where you, you don't do Donglen light. When I'm teaching it like in a weekend retreat, or I'm teaching it in cultivating emotional balance teacher training, it's five weeks, I never see the people again, and it's more or less, the CEB itself is to be a secular training, CEB, TT, not so much. Um, but when I'm teaching for a brief period, I, I, teach, I teach Donglen light. Because I don't want people to teach this to just ordinary civilians. I teach them the full day. I think it would just be overwhelming for people. So Donglen light is, as you're breathing in with this aspiration of compassion, just imagine that darkness evaporating into the sky. Don't take it upon yourself. It's just too loaded. Psychologically, it could be really heavy, couldn't it? I'm, just, I'm looking to Marie. I think it would be very heavy, probably too heavy for a lot of people. They say, I'm already rather depressed. I'm already feeling low self-esteem. And now you want me to actually experience other people's misery as well and take it upon myself. <sighs> they can go into total melt meltdown then. So I think this is very, something very delicate, very sensitive. But for those who are prepared, who have a really solid foundation, who can take on the full practice, then you actually imagine taking upon yourself the suffering. And Dingo Kenzo Rinpoche, this extraordinary Dzogchen master, one of the lamas of his holiness, Dalai Lama, he says, don't be dismayed if, if as a result of this practice temporarily, you do feel somewhat heavy, the mind feels clouded, the mind feels somewhat obscured, obscurations arising. This is not a bad sign, he said. You're actually taking on the suffering, and doing so can really be very purifying for your own mind. And it will pass, it will be a nyam, It'll be one of those transient experiences. You're not going to walk around with a burden forever. But if it does happen sometimes, then consider the practice is working. You're getting some of the import. You're getting some of the significance, the gravitas of the practice. And it can be, even, it's, even though it's unpleasant, it can be very purifying. A, a type of unpleasantness worth taking on. So again, to be handled with great delicacy, great sensitivity. And then final point, and we're finished for this aphorism, and it's kind of a nice rounding off, because this finishes the teachings on Donglen. Um, the classic teachings, and Geshe Rapna made this point too, uh, he actually had his own, he gave oral teaching, and his teaching also became a commentary. Of course, it's very, very good on the seven-point mind training. Um, and this may be from him, but I know it's good, sound teaching. And that is, when practicing Donglen, go out of your way to focus on those people, not only those who are suffering, suffering perhaps even very intensely, physically, mentally. But he said, especially focus on those people who are bringing great misery to the world. The evildoers, people acting out of malice, out of greed, bigotry, hostility, etc., etc. Uh, so no need to give any names at all. You can come up with your own list. But those people, whether they're global figures on the global stage of history, everybody knows their names, or whether they're simply people you know. It could be people you know who, if you look at their behavior, not being judgmental, but being discerning. 
And discerning means attend to the behavior and use your intelligence. Is this behavior wholesome or is it unwholesome? As you try to draw inferences, do you think there are mental afflictions underlying this or not? This is not being judgmental. It, is being, it doesn't need to be being simply judgmental. It is being discerning. Like a doctor who has different patients coming in. If the doctor says, oh, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to be judgmental. I won't say whether you have cancer or not. I don't want to be judgmental. Well, that's the person's an idiot. Right? Now, I came in here for diagnosis, not for you to be judgmental, but to be discerning. Please tell me what's going on in my body. I feel bad. And so the doctor will make the diagnosis. Well, lamas make diagnoses. Not a physical, unless they're also a Tibetan doctor, but lamas will make diagnoses as well. And that's their job. A really good lama is not just to be sweet and kind and give a bunch of teachings. If it's really a guru-disciple relationship, the guru's job is to be discerning like a doctor and to recognize here's some behavior that you need to look at. This is harmful behavior. I sense this mental affliction is really operative. You should be looking at this. This is really harming yourself, harming other people. Not being judgmental, like I don't like you or you're a bad person. Saying this mental affliction seems to be an issue. This type of behavior should tend to, this you should simply stop. This is really harmful behavior. Stop it immediately. Here's the underlying mental affliction. Here are some practice you can do to help you overcome that mental affliction. So with that spirit, that spirit of wise, discerning, compassionate attention given to others, when we, whether on the, the global stage or in our personal relationship with other people, when, with our best of powers of intelligence and discernment, we sense that really seems to be very harmful behavior, and I sense this is probably the mental affliction behind it, especially when people, we see people doing real great harm, whether locally or on a global level. Those are the people most worthy of our practicing Donglen towards them. Most worthy. In the Buddhist view, if they really bring a lot of harm to the world, the karma will come back. And it will be very awful. They'll really suffer more than you'd ever want them to suffer. If you knew the kind of suffering that was coming, you might want them, you know, might want them to be punished, but you wouldn't want to be punished that much. So those people especially. And then it's especially the emphasis on compassion. And it's especially emphasis on may you be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. Great big highlight, 64 font. May you be free of the causes of suffering. Causes of and insofar as we discern, we sense, I think this is the underlying cause. That's the behavior. But this is the underlying cause. May you be free. May you be free. Imagining a Hitler overcoming all sense of racism, all sense of self-aggrandizement, all sense of the many mental afflictions that tortured his mind and brought so much misery to the world. And that's just a very famous account. But imagine him being free. It's too late for him as an individual. He's already moved on. He's someplace else. But individuals nowadays, we attend to them, we see some real evil. May you be free of that and imagine it to be so. Imagine taking that on. Very powerful practice. So that's a little bit of a couple of days devoted to a very powerful practice. Tra traces back to Shantideva. He traces it back to the Mahayana teachings on Bodhicitta. Why don't we just deal with Maybe one more. Back to substrate. We can kind of chill a little bit. Back to substrate consciousness. Is the substrate consciousness, is it, if the substrate consciousness is not permanent, 
And it is not permanent in the sense that it's not immutable. The Buddhist, the, the Buddha, the, again, this word permanent, impermanent, has different meanings depending on whether you're coming from a Western context or Buddhist context. Thakpa in Tibetan or Nitya in Sanskrit. When saying something is permanent in the Buddhist context, it means it's unchanging. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be there forever. It means it's unchanging. It's static. It's frozen. Immutable. That's what permanent means. Right? Uh, and so the substrate consciousness, is it permanent? No, no, no. It's changing moment to moment. And moreover, it gets configured by memories, by habits, habitual formations, karma, and so forth. So it's, it's a rising independence upon causal conditions. It, in turn, influences, has its own, uh, its own consequences. It's changing from moment to moment to moment. So no, the substrate consciousness is not permanent. Can you take the substrate consciousness and snuff it out? Oh, this question it just raises so many interesting questions. It's hard for me to just stay on, stay on key. This is really kind of important. From the Theravada perspective, Theravada interpretation of the Pali Canon, if we ask the question, does, the, uh, does an individual's continuum of mental consciousness, which is a rising independence upon prior causes and conditions, when that person becomes an arhat, and then that arhat dies, is that continuum of mental consciousness, let alone the sensory consciousness, let alone the body, let alone karma, no, the continuum of mental consciousness, that is rising from moment to moment, that's conditioned by past karma and klesha, does that continue on, that momentary arising and passing of consciousness, carry on after the arhat's death, or is it terminated, cut, severed forever? The answer is it's cut and severed forever. It does not continue on. It's very clear in the Pali Canon Theravada interpretation. So it looks like it had no beginning, but a guillotine came down when the arhat died, and the arhat then is an arhat without remainder. Nothing remains of that individual continuum. So it looks like it, it absolutely terminated. It was impermanent in the sense that it stopped being existing altogether. If we go to the Mahayana, I'm just going to slip right off to Dzogchen because I, li I like the tension between the Pali Canon and the Dzogchen. Dzogchen perspective. Does that continuum of your substrate consciousness, because that's what we're really kind of boiling, boiling down to, that which continues from lifetime to lifetime, Finally, you're an arhat. Finally, you'll never, ever again have a life propelled, another rebirth propelled by karma and klesha. The substrate consciousness. Does that continue? Or is it terminated, cut off, annihilated entirely? The answer is neither one. It doesn't continue. So clear, The Buddha made it so clear it does not continue. But nor is it terminated but rather when an ice cube melts, does the ice cube become nothing or does it remain an ice cube? And well, we all know the answer to that. It's a silly question. It melts into liquid, into fluid, right? And so the crystallized continuum of consciousness melts, but Rikpa does not terminate. So there's a continuity of experience. There's a continuity of experience. And it's hard to avoid this conclusion even from the Pali Canon and the Theravada. And I, and I cited that passage earlier about signless consciousness, consciousness that is unborn even after the Arhat's death. Unborn consciousness. So Buddha's view, and that is in this lifetime, if you achieve enlightenment in this lifetime, the frozen substrate consciousness is no longer there, melted into Rikpa. 
but it didn't become nothing, nor did it continue as frozen moment-to-moment consciousness. It's melted into Rigpa. And inconceivably, inconceivably. But now back.